HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by the Dairy Farm Families of Wisconsin, the Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board. Did you know that today Wisconsin produces more than 600 varieties, types, and styles of American, international style, and original cheese that win more awards than any other state or country? To learn more, visit eatwisconsincheese.com. This is Chef Emily Peterson, host of Sharp and Hot. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hello, this is Diane Stemple on Cutting the Curd on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Today, I am welcoming in studio David Asher, an, an author of the new book, The Art of Natural Cheesemaking. Welcome, David. Thank you very much. I'm so delighted to have you in studio. Oh, really great to be here in Brooklyn. <laughs> so you have come all the way from British Columbia? That's right. And um, how long a visit to New York? I'm here for about a week. Um, oh, great. This is uh, the final stage of my first international book tour. Oh. Mm-hmm. And I understand um, you've been doing a lot of cheesemaking activities? Yeah, yeah, all across the states and Canada. I've been uh, teaching classes and doing demonstrations and book readings uh, on the West Coast in uh, Washington State, California, mm-hmm. uh, Wisconsin, uh, Illinois, uh, Ontario, and now here in New York. Okay. And you had some courses over the weekend? That's right. I gave a few classes with uh, Slow Food USA at the Crown Finish Caves here in Brooklyn. And how did those go? Fantastically. Oh, great. Yeah, had a great crowd, uh-huh. and uh, we put on a good show. Is it the same course uh, over and over, or do you offer different courses during the book tour? Uh, I like to offer a selection of different cheese courses. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, this... Uh, This one past workshop was a more intensive class. Uh, I gave five different sessions on various cheesy topics. Um, Did anyone take all of them? Could you take all of them? Yeah, a few people did stay for the entire weekend. Uh, Quite a few people came from out of town. A few cheesemakers from the Northeast came out to take the class. And some people even came down from Canada. Oh, neat. Hmm. So that must have been exciting. Yeah, it was great to have. And you, um, I presume you signed and sold books? Oh, yeah. Yeah, (laughs) a small mountain of them. (laughs) 
<laughs> so you've have you been to New York before? Uh, yeah, uh, my brother used to live in Brooklyn, so I, I know the, know the uh, city a bit. When were you last here? About ten years ago. It's changed quite a bit. Oh yeah, yeah. especially Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. This part you never would have come to ten years ago. <laughs> no, probably not. <laughs> so, do you have any time for being a tourist while you're here? Uh, yeah, I got to spend the day walking around. Um, Chelsea and uh, Greenwich Village today. Oh, it's a perfect day. Mm-hmm. The weather great. in New York is perfect today. Yeah. Uh, okay, so let's go to the book, The Art of Natural Cheese Making. It came out this year, right? That's right, just a couple of months ago. It's not okay. off the press. And what was your primary motivation in writing this book? Uh, well, the, the main reason why I wrote it was uh, uh, to provide a, a resource for learning how to make cheese a more natural way. Mm-hmm. Uh, there aren't really any guidebooks out there that teach uh, uh, an organic philosophy in cheese making. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is the sort of uh, cheese making that I practice at home, a very natural approach. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I teach a lot of cheese making cor- courses around Canada and elsewhere. And I wanted to provide a resource for my students to take home um, after the class so that they can continue on learning on their own um, mm-hmm. after taking a workshop. And they might not remember all the details. Exactly. So, <laughs> so now with this resource I've provided, this, this book, uh, students can, uh, uh, can remember everything that I teach them and uh, do some more exploring on their own time. Okay. And who do you think is your basic audience? Would it be uh, people who want to make cheese at home or people who want to start businesses? Well, uh, the book the book can appeal to almost everyone, um, mm-hmm. not just uh, small scale artisan cheesemakers who I feel will be really uh, interested in some of the techniques that I share on making cheese more naturally, mm-hmm. but also uh, uh, home hobby cheesemakers, mm-hmm. including those who uh, are just starting out. There's some very uh, uh, very approachable uh, introductory uh, cheeses in there, mm-hmm. um, but also for just the cheese eater, anybody interested in knowing how their favorite cheese comes to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've got some interesting insights in how. Uh, uh, on how different styles of cheese make different style of cheeses that we enjoy uh, came to be. Okay. Um, now, did you have to sell the idea to a publisher, or did they come to you? I did. I went. Uh, I went a knocking. Um, <laughs> uh, a knocking on uh, on Chelsea Green, my publisher uh, in Vermont. And they're a very friendly to food publisher. Very much so. Very friendly to cheese also. Mm-hmm. And very friendly to fermentation. Mm-hmm. Uh, my book kind of bridges those two. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, when I, when, uh, you know, they're my favorite publisher because I'm really into food and farming and cheese. And mm-hmm. they publish a lot of books on the subject. And I have a lot of their books in my home collection. Mm-hmm. Uh, my favorite book of theirs, uh, published by my favorite author and mentor, uh, Sandor Katz, is okay. uh, Wild Fermentation. Mm-hmm. And that was a very uh, important important uh, important book in my development as a, a cheesemaker mm-hmm. uh, it's really inspired a lot of the philosophy a natural philosophy of my cheesemaking and uh, I felt that because they'd published these books the different books of Sandor uh, as well as other cheesemaking guidebooks that they would be interested in this uh, ferment- wild fermentation inspired approach to cheesemaking that I provide mm-hmm. now where is Sandor from uh, he lives down in Tennessee he's the uh, the father of the fermentation revolution. Okay. Uh, he's, he's, <laughs> Self-described, uh, or, or is that your that's term? What, that's, the way, that's, what, that's how I refer to him. Okay. Um, and uh, he's essentially re- like really uh, re- he's a, the, uh, revived the practices of uh, kombucha making and, uh, and sauerkraut making and sourdough baking all across America. Okay. Hmm. I, didn't, I, don't, I don't know him, but didn't he re- write the... Uh, Introduction to your That's book. That's right. He wrote the foreword to my book, so oh. I'm really blessed to have uh, 
to have uh, his words at the beginning of my book. So you and he know each other. Yeah. That's oh, right. that's nice. Mm-hmm. That's nice. Um, so you went a knocking at the publisher's uh, door. Were they pretty receptive right away? Yeah, very receptive. They were uh, very encouraging and very enthusiastic about the idea. And they got back to me really soon mm-hmm. um, after I sent a query and asked me to submit a full proposal. Mm-hmm. And after I spent a few months laboring away at uh, right. perfecting my proposal, that uh, it was probably a, a three-month process. Right. Uh, How many pages is a proposal? Uh, or they, was yours? I mean, every uh, every publisher is different. They all ask for different things from per, uh, prospective authors. Mm-hmm. Uh, they asked for a couple of chapters, uh, biographies, and background material, and they wanted to know what the, the, the target audience would be and mm-hmm. uh, how my book compared to other books on the subject. So mm-hmm. I, I did my research and... Um, mm-hmm. And uh, uh, wrote a few chapters, and uh, they liked what I had to say, and uh, mm-hmm. signed me on to write the book about two years ago. Okay. I was going to ask, how long did it take to write the book? Uh, about a year and a half total. Mm-hmm. Yeah, from uh, starting the, the, the proposal, uh, from writing the, the first chapters of the proposal to having the finished product in hand was about a year and a half. Mm-hmm. And did it? Um, did most of your time get spent writing the book? Yeah, either writing the book or making the cheeses that are featured in the photographs mm-hmm. of the book. Mm-hmm. Okay, so planning for the photo shoots. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, milking the animals, you know, uh, <laughs> oh, <laughs> uh, making actually, the cheeses in my own home, yeah. And, milking uh, the animals? Them. Do yeah, you have exactly. animals? Um, I, I used to. I don't, <laughs> I don't keep any animals anymore. I found it really hard to balance uh, the writing and the mm-hmm. traveling and teaching right. uh, with the care of uh, the goats that I, that, I, that I used to have. So uh, mm-hmm. friends of mine are taking care of them now, and uh, someday I hope to take them back into, into my home. Can you use their milk? I can. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's yeah. good. That's good. Now, what parts of the book were the easiest to write? Hmm. The ones, uh, the chapters that... Uh, describe my favorite cheeses, of okay. course. So cheeses like goat, che- the goat cheese section are really fun and easy for me to write. Because oh, because you knew yeah, them, I like, know, I know like them the back so, of your hand. So and, well, exactly. Uh-huh. Yeah, um, the pages on the on the philosophy of cheese making were interesting to me, but more more complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I needed to do a lot more research on uh, traditional practices. Mm-hmm. Uh, I needed to. Uh, uh, I needed to explore certain methods of cheesemaking in order to learn more about them, ones that mm-hmm. I'm not totally familiar with. Mm-hmm. Uh, I needed to uh, refine my methods in some different styles that I hadn't perfected yet in order to be sure that I could you know, teach clearly in my book how to, how to, uh, how to make these particular styles of cheeses. So mm-hmm. some took a little bit more work, yes. Okay. Now, um, you said you had to do research. How much research did you do? What did it involve? And did you have any help? Hmm. Um, so some of my research involved consulting other cheese-making guidebooks. A few mm-hmm. other guidebooks were really you know, important for helping me develop this book. Mm-hmm. Um, I went looking through uh, old texts, like looking at uh, ancient cheese-making practices, like looking at how people used to make rennet. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. For instance, you know, I've got a recipe in my book on how to produce your own rennet from a from a calf stomach, mm-hmm. um, but the technique isn't really all that written about uh, in uh, contemporary literature. So I have to go back. That's one of your first recipes, That's is right. it yeah, not? It, it, it may be the first recipe <laughs> in the book. Well, it's, it's, yes, what, it's what gets cheese started, right? Um, uh, and uh, so I have to go looking at, at, at texts from before, you know, it didn't from sound World that War One. I, I have to admit. <laughs> But it's not supposed to. <laughs> it's not supposed right, to. Yeah. Right, right. Um, so you did research there. Did you have any help? Did you have a research assistant? Or? I didn't have a research assistant. I did most of the research on my own. Okay. On my own. And um, a lot of the research that I also did involved my own 
involved my own experimentation with milk. Mm -hmm. So studying the medium, um, playing around with the different cheeses I was making, uh, trying out different conditions in the aging environment using different starter cultures. Mm -hmm. um, so that would be kind milks. of like in-depth recipe checking exactly. because the recipes are all cheese. So yeah. you were making sure you were recommending uh, a successful recipe. Yeah, exactly. So looking for the, you know, mm -hmm. the, the right humidities for making certain styles of cheeses, the right temperatures for getting certain rind, mm -hmm. rinds to develop, uh, uh, the right milks for using for making certain cheeses and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. Now, do you have a background in writing or research or science? What is your particular background? No, writing is brand new to me. Mm -hmm. um, this is a it was a, it was a challenge in that respect. I mm have -hmm. never written anything so substantial in my life before. It's quite um, long. It's quite long. It's, uh, <laughs> and the pages almost, are big. It's about, it's about 300 pages. <laughs> the pages are big. They're full of writing. Um, <laughs> over 100,000 words in there. Yes. Um, uh, uh, so it was, uh, it was, that, that was entirely new to me, and I had to learn as I had to learn as I had to learn as as I went on, 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 on writing styles and such. And my, my publishers are very helpful and very mm -hmm. encouraging in that respect. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so, what is your background? My, what did, my own what did you do before cheese making? Um, cheese making has uh, kind of occupied my life for the last ten years, mm -hmm. um, but it's relatively new in my life. It's not something I, I studied in school, and it's something mm -hmm. I. Not something I I I, I, I set up to, to I set up to do uh, mm -hmm. early on. Um, I I do have a science background. Mm -hmm. uh, I studied uh, environmental engineering, mm. so I have a bit of a background in microbiology. Okay. Um, but um, I didn't finish my degree mm -hmm. uh, because I I felt uh, I felt a lot more attracted. To farming, as mm -hmm. I was uh, in my studies, and uh, decided I wanted to become a farmer mm -hmm. um, midway through my degree, and ended up ended up leaving engineering school to pursue my dream of becoming an organic farmer. Huh. Okay. Mm -hmm. Is your family from farming? No. No. Have, farming is not in our blood. Um, <laughs> Were they uh, excited about your choice? No. It was it was challenging <laughs> for them to accept my decisions, and even sure. even to this day, you know, uh -huh. uh, even having read the book, it's a little it's sometimes a little hard for them to accept. Oh, but they can be proud their son wrote no, a book. They're coming, they're coming around. Okay, yeah. slowly but surely. <laughs> mm -hmm. Now, one of the things you talk about uh, early in the book is that weird island in Canada. Oh, yes, this yeah. off-the-grid off island. Yeah, what's, just, just as a tangent, can you tell me a little, what's the name of it and, and what's it about? So it's, it's called Laskidi Island, and it's uh, one of the islands in a group of islands uh, where, where I live on the west coast of British Columbia, Canada. Oh, so you live on an island, but so not that island. Not that island, okay. that's right. So is yours a, a bit more... Um, it's a bit more connected. Normal? Yeah, it's a bit more <laughs> normalized than this one. So um, this is an island I, I, I've traveled to several times in order to put on cheese-making classes, and I've got uh, pretty close to the residents there and they're all really interested in what I what I have to share mm -hmm. um, because they um, uh, they practice uh, self sufficient self sufficiency to an extreme degree over there because mm -hmm. they have very few connections to the outside world. The island is very um, uh, very uh, DIY minded. They, they have to do everything themselves because mm -hmm. the, they have they have no other. They really have no other way. They have to provide for their community. Okay, um, so all food. Uh, all food, uh, really. They do they have electricity? Just about everything they do, they produce at home. Uh, they produce their own electricity. There's no uh, there's no public uh, utilities. Okay. They have to treat their own treat their own waste. They have to deal with all their own garbage. Wow. Um, uh, you know, How they can't many drive people cars live on, on this? The island. Oh, you can't. No, there's you can't. no uh, cars. There, there is an occasional barge. They do have cars there. It's hard for any North American to live without 
of them, um, and they, uh, they their they cars have, have them there. many of their cars have been on the island for forty, fifty years oh, um, because there's no way to get them on or off. Oh wow! Yeah. They don't take ferries there ever. No, the the only ferry is an occasional passenger ferry. Okay, um, wow. Yeah. So who lives there? Um, lots of uh, organic-minded people, mm-hmm. um, folks who Age want to live range? with the land. Are they old the hipsters? Uh, there's a lot of old hippies out there. Uh, people between lots of lots of young people too that are attracted mm-hmm. to that way of life, mm-hmm. um, and um, uh, I'm very attracted to that way of life as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, um, so they're a very simpatico community for and you. We got along really well, uh-huh. yeah. and um, they've really supported me in this uh, in this journey. Oh, so I decided to write a little bit about them. In the, yeah, because the I'd never heard of them. It was an interesting little segue in mm-hmm. your book. Okay, well, it's time for a break. Uh, we'll be back after the break to discuss the contents of the book, uh, David Asher's book, The Art of Natural Cheesemaking. I Farm families of Wisconsin and the Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board are proud to underwrite Cutting the Curd on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Wisconsin cheeses have an illustrious heritage of more than 170 years of quality and craftsmanship. During this long and rich history, the art and science of cheesemaking have been captured in time-honored traditions that produce cheese varieties of unsurpassed excellence. Today, Wisconsin produces more than 600 varieties, types, and styles of American, international style, and original cheeses that win more awards than any other state or country. To learn more, visit www.eatwisconsincheese.com. Hello, back on Cutting the Curd with David Asher, author of The Art of Natural Cheesemaking. There's so much information in this book. What's great about this gig for me is how much I get to learn and how much more I need to learn. But anyway, let's discuss your philosophy of cheesemaking. You talk about wanting to, quote, re-embrace the community of microorganisms. Can you explain that further? (laughs) Yeah, so... um uh, here in North America, we're, we're afraid of bacteria, really. Um, we pasteurize, we sterilize, um, we sanitize just about everything we come in contact with, um, including ourselves, our bodies. You um, include yourself in... I, I personally don't. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> But you are from North America. I'm from North America, yes, and yes, I'm, okay. I'm, I'm surrounded by that, and I, I question it. Okay. Um, and uh, in particular, in our, in our, in our, in our cheesemaking, we're uh, very sanitized and sterilized in our practices here at North America. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, that's necessary for a number of reasons on a commercial scale, but on a home scale, I, I argue that it's, it's not a necessity, that, that cheesemaking can be made in, uh, in less than sterile conditions um, with uh, uh, good 
microbes that we cultivate ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I believe that uh, there's a there's a healthy community of microbes out there that can help uh, that can help cheesemakers uh, practice a, a very safe traditional cheesemaking. Um, and I, I I practice in my cheesemaking. Uh, uh, um, a method that's dependent upon uh, healthy communities of microorganisms mm-hmm. rather than uh, the standard practices in cheesemaking which depend on uh, monocultures uh, of bacteria, individual freeze-dried starter cultures that I use to make certain cheeses. I uh, rely upon a, the, the community of microorganisms that's present in raw milk, the beneficial microorganisms that are present in raw milk to make my cheeses happen. And that's something that's, uh, that's really hard for a lot of people to do because we're really afraid of, uh, of raw milk. Mm-hmm. Now, I understand how pasteurizing milk decreases the available good and bad bacteria for cheesemaking. Mm-hmm. But you also have very strong feelings, and you mentioned it, about freeze-dried freeze starter and synthetic rennet. Can you tell me more about that? Yes. Because you go on a, a lot about that in the yeah. book. So uh, cheesemakers in North America all use uh, these uh, freeze-dried uh, starter cultures, these mm-hmm. uh, packaged DVI cultures, as they call them. Um, all of inoculants. them? Just about... You know, I'd say probably 99% okay. of cheesemakers in North America use it. Mm-hmm. And not just the industrial cheesemakers, but the vast majority of our artisanal cheesers, even small-scale mm-hmm. uh, farmstead uh, organic cheesemakers use these uh, direct vat inoculant cultures rather than keeping their own starter cultures. So DVI stands for direct vat inoculated. You got it, Diane. Okay. That's right. Um, so these are these are freeze-dried cultures cheesemakers use. They they buy different packages of cultures to use um, for making different cheeses. For mm-hmm. instance, they'll, they'll buy a certain culture for making a chev, a certain mm-hmm. culture for making a cheddar, a certain culture mm-hmm. for making a camembert. Um, and when they make their cheeses, they'll, they'll use that starter to make that certain style of cheese. Um, and uh, I believe that uh, there's a there's a, a, a different way of doing things. That mm-hmm. Traditional cheesemakers uh, didn't have access to these DVI starter cultures when they made their cheeses, mm-hmm. and yet uh, traditional cheesemakers making cheese before they had an understanding of the, the the microbiology and the chemistry involved in the cheesemaking process uh, discovered just about every style of cheese that we know and love today, um, mm-hmm. and were able to cultivate the conditions that. Uh, led to the development of all these style of cheeses without having to use these freeze-dried, sterilized cultures. Cultures. Exactly. Mm-hmm. They, they rely upon the diversity of microorganisms within raw milk, okay. um, even though they didn't know it was there, to allow their cheeses to develop their particular qualities. Because the community of microorganisms in the raw milk that they work with allowed these different cheese styles to evolve from the same milk because uh, the, the, depending on how the milk was handled as it was transformed into cheese, uh, certain strains of microorganisms within the raw milk came to dominate the development because they were encouraged by the different conditions that were created. Okay. Do you, is there evidence, though, for negative consequences of using these uh, store-bought, ordered DVI cultures? I feel there is. What, um, what would that be? And the main one is that in order to create the conditions that allow these uh, DVI strains of culture to thrive, uh, cheesemakers have to create perfectly sterile conditions um, uh, in, order for them, in order for them to survive. Why? Um, because these cultures are raised in the laboratory mm-hmm. in perfectly sterile conditions. Um, there are single strains of microorganisms that don't really exist in nature on their own. Okay. Uh, in nature, microorganisms ex- generally exist in communities. Um, okay. And when these individual strains of culture are uh, put into the real world, like in the cheesemaker's vat, 
um, they become susceptible to other microorganisms that may come in and ruin uh, the cheesemaker. And cheesemakers have mm. to take extra precautions to prevent these, these wild microorganisms from ruining a batch of DVI mm. cheese by pasteurizing and sterilizing. It seems a little counterintuitive that the carefully created culture would be more, uh, you know, susceptible to spoiling by other bacteria than what you're recommending. It's, and, and Is that, that, that just... That might be just because of the way we... Because of the way we... we um, uh, understand microorganisms in North America isn't exactly um, on par with what research shows exists on a microbial level. That, uh. um, that it's in fact micro, it's in fact communities of microorganisms that uh, that are much stronger than individual strains. So you're sort of saying it could be we our research and we believe incorrectly. Yeah, that, that our research recent, has recent, led us down that, the wrong path. That's right. That recent recent studies uh, on the microbiology of raw milk and raw milk cheeses shows um, that the community of microorganisms in raw milk uh, that's encouraged by traditional cheese making practices may in fact prevent may in fact prevent unwanted microorganisms from establishing themselves right. in the cheese. Right, and, and that I have heard before, and, and many in the cheese community believe that. Mm -hmm. I think. Yeah. Um, now, another thing you talk about is organic cheese. I have uh, an innocent, maybe naive, bias against organic cheese. Mm -hmm. But that's because I can go to the grocery store and see a lot of bad organic cheese. That's true. And then there's better non-organic cheese from smaller producers. That's right. Where do you... What, when you say organic, what are you referring to? Well, to be honest with you, I, 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 I feel in the same, the same way as You've you. You've been that, in your, that that your grocery store is the same. That uh, I will not necessarily choose a, a certified organic cheese over a not certified organic right. cheese. Because there's... Uh, it you know, doesn't apply of, to cheese making no, it, it as just, well as, let's say, meat. No, it, in fact, the organic cheese making, the, the organic regulations really just apply to the, uh, to the, to the production of milk. Mm -hmm. Rather than really to the production of the cheeses, not, there's not very many specific standards for organic in, in cheese making, and cheesemakers who use practices that are approved by stand, by organic uh, by the organic certification may not actually be doing things all that naturally. Right. Um, and right. there's there's many non-certified cheesemakers out there that practice a much more natural, much more traditional cheesemaking than many uh, certified organic producers. Right. That when you're behind the cheese counter, that's what you often have to explain to people, and they think you're leading them astray. Mm -hmm. But yeah, you're it can, not. It can, you're... Be, it can be very confusing <laughs> for the consumer. Right. Yeah. Right. So when you say you practice organic cheesemaking, what are you implying? So... What, what, what I mean when I say that is that I, I practice uh, a cheesemaking that's inspired by the principles of our organic agriculture and that uh, uh, cheesemakers should strive for uh, practicing as natural and self-sufficient a cheesemaking as possible. Mm, okay. um, that in, in organic agriculture, uh, cheesemaker, uh, organic agriculture farmers are forbidden from using genetically modified crops, so I feel the same should be true mm -hmm. for cheesemakers that cheese mm -hmm. make, uh, in, in organic cheesemaking that there should be no uh, certified or, uh, there should be no genetically modified ingredients in the cheese mm -hmm. um, and um, uh, I, I feel that uh, cheesemakers uh, who practice a, a sort of organic cheesemaking should keep the cultures of their cheese just like the certified many certified organic farmers save the seeds of the vegetables that they grow mm -hmm. um, and um, uh, uh, certified organic farmers help to uh, build 
build the soil and uh, improve the microbial community mm-hmm. of, their, of, their, of their farm uh, mm-hmm. through uh, soil building practices. And I feel that cheesemakers should be right. doing the same with their cheeses. I guess I use the word sustainable rather than organic mm-hmm. philosophically. Yes. I, and I, and I, I suppose I, I, I could use that same term as well. <laughs> okay, like now, this is another offshoot, and mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't exactly know if you said this or if I just wondered it. Um, I almost got the feeling that you were saying vegetarians should overlook rennet as meat. Um, did, did I make that up? What I, I guess I'm saying uh, it more has to do with the milk, overlooking the milk as a, as a, as a vegetarian product. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. I, I, make, I make the argument in, in the book um, uh, about vegetarianism and cheese making um, around uh, well, the, uh, one particular ingredient, which is rennet. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And rennet in cheese making is the coagulating enzyme that helps the curd separate out from the whey. Right. And this rennet can come from a lot of different sources. Right. Um, some more more vegetarian than others. Right. Um, so the, the traditional rennet enzyme comes from the stomach lining of a, of a young calf. It has to be slaughtered right. in order for cheesemakers to gain access to that enzyme. Right. But there are rennet. So that's animal killing. That's animal so that's killing why involved. vegetarians don't want don't that want to use rennet that rennet enzyme in exactly. their cheese. Um, but the rennet, the, the animal rennet replacements, these microbial rennets that are on the marketplace today, mm-hmm. um, even though they may be labeled as vegetarian rennets, do not necessarily make a vegetarian cheese because in the production of milk, uh, animals have to be slaughtered. But that's an extra... I mean, that... <laughs> first of all, milking doesn't kill an animal. It's true. Milking does not kill an animal. <laughs> no, no. There's... So just because the boys happen to get slaughtered sooner than the girls, that's not the cheese eater's problem or responsibility? I think as a consumer, oh. it is... The, but you're the for responsibility cheese eating. of the cheese. But maker. you're for cheese eating. I am, and, I, and I'm not against the eating of animals either. <laughs> Me um, either. I find Me they either. both go hand. They both go hand in hand. Okay, but but you see how I got confused that you were sort of saying uh, it's not the rennet that's meat it, or, or meat killing. Yes. It's the. Yeah, I see that it's the it's the it's the, yeah. it's the, it's the, the cheese itself, not, right, the, not necessarily right. the rennet. And and vegetarians should not stop eating cheese. I don't think. I I, I mean I think I think that if they're choosing terrible. if they're choosing to consume milk and dairy products, um, that they should uh, choose to consume cheese that's made with uh, an an animal rennet. Ah, okay. Okay. Um, that it shouldn't be considered uh, now, non-vegetarian. But what about kosher? That's a great question. That's a, you know, if if you can talk a vegetarian into animal rennet, do you want to talk a kosher person into animal rennet? I try to, <laughs> um, and do I, I can succeed? I can make a pretty I can make a pretty good argument. Okay. From the from the rabbis that I've spoken to mm-hmm. about this subject, and I did do some research for this book on this subject because mm-hmm. I, wa- I wanted mm-hmm. to be able to address it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, from the rabbis that I spoke to on the subject, uh, their uh, impression, uh, from what they've what they've told me, and from what I've understood, mm-hmm. uh, is that rennet, uh, even though it's an animal product and it's not supposed to be mixed mixed with Milk right. and cheese making—that would be right. unkosher. Right. Um, the rennet itself 
is used in such a small amount that it's not, and, and the way that it's processed doesn't, like it transforms it into something that's not actually meat. And if you were to use it in mix, mixing with the milk, that it would actually be okay. The problem is that the rennet doesn't come, typically doesn't come from a kosher slaughtered animal. Oh, so it interesting. Can't be used. Interesting. So if it's a kosher calf, yes. Stomach. If it's a kosher slaughtered calf, <laughs> And the rennet from their stomach oh. could be used to ah. make a kosher cheese. I wonder, though, if that's a more liberal kosher rabbi who it, it, who responded in that way. It may be, but I've heard I've heard it from a number from a number of different rabbis. However, kosher kosher rennet is in, I mean kosher calf rennet is impossible to find. It doesn't mm-hmm. exist. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, but traditionally, um, but it, it could be it, it, it did it could be found. Uh, and these days, I mean, it could what be about it could Israel? be it could be made. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's nobody making it, as far as I know. Okay, and and these days, uh, any any kosher cheese would be made uh, would have to be made because there's no alternative with a mm-hmm. microbial mm-hmm. Uh, non-animal. Rennet. Okay. And it's Rosh Hashanah today. Yeah. Happy New Year Happy to New Year. all our listeners um, who are celebrating. Anyway, um, you seem very attached to kefir. Is that how you say it? I call it uh, kefir. Uh, kefir. We okay. call it kefir up in Canada. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. But that's okay. I, do you think we call it kefir? Uh, Americans generally do call it kefir. Okay. Uh, um, did you start out using it or did you... Have you gravitated to it after a while? Kefir culture may be what got me into cheesemaking. That's okay. one, of the, one, of the, one of the things that got me into it. I was keeping uh, a kefir culture before I started cheesemaking. It's what, uh, it's okay. what inspired my first um, cheesemaking approach. Okay. Can you talk about the arguments for and against using kefir um, in all cheesemaking? Because so, that's what you recommend. So that's, what I, that's what I recommend. That's what I do. I use my uh, kefir culture uh, as a starter culture for making my own cheese. And for those of you that don't know as what As opposed I, to rennet. As it's, opposed the first, to, it's the first no, thing you put a, in. As opposed to using freeze-dried starter cultures. Yes. So I still yes, do use yes. the rennet. Well, but I, no, but I mean the first step is the starter culture the starter and the culture, second and step the is rennet the rennet. Is that's right. So um, kefir culture, for those of you that don't know, is this little... Um, this little um, uh, culture that you can touch and feel. The culture is, uh, comes from what's known as the kefir grain, which is this. Um, this there are pictures in the there's book. Some pictures in the book, in case you're wondering. Uh, there are these cauliflower-shaped granules that grow in milk and that ferment the milk into kefir. Mm-hmm. People have been keeping these kefir grains for thousands of years. They've been passed down from generation to generation. They were discovered some six or seven thousand years ago in Central Asia, mm-hmm. and they contain within the grain um, uh, a diversity of microorganisms, about 60 or 70 different strains, maybe more, of bacteria, fungi, and yeasts. Uh, in kefir in, all the time. In the kefir all the time. Pretty stable collection of microorganisms that... Uh, are actually very similar to the microorganisms that are present in raw milk. Mm-hmm. So that is a whole community, which is what you talk about wanting to, to use cultivate. and cultivate. Exactly. Yeah. And this, this, this community of microorganisms in kefir is very strong, and the culture is actually very difficult to contaminate. I've been keeping it for 10 years or so. I've had kefir grains in my hands for about 10 years. Uh, yeah. You mean going I, I from one to the other yeah. to the other? I like feed, I feed them every they're day. They're relatives. Exactly. They are relatives. Well, they're the same. The it's children. the same kefir. It, it just grows over okay. time as you feed it. Um, so I, I feed it every day. And it sounds it, like it, a horror movie. <laughs> it's going to take over It does your take house. over your kitchen if you're not careful. Um, uh, this kefir, I feed it every day. It feeds me. I, 
excuse me, back kefir. Mm-hmm. Um, and I use that kefir as a starter culture for making cheese. Um, and uh, the culture within it is, a, a, in my mind, a perfect starter culture for making cheese because it contains within it uh, the same microorganisms, the same beneficial microorganisms that are present in raw milk. Mm-hmm. But most of the cheese community believes that your starter culture should be attached to your recipe, correct? Mm-hmm. So you just use your same grains for all your types of cheese. That's right. So the, the idea in the, in the cheese making world is that a certain starter culture should be used for making a certain cheese. So right. you use one culture for mozzarella, one for mm-hmm. a chev, one for uh, camembert. But and explain that to me a little bit scientifically. So um, uh, to make a, a, a mozzarella, cheesemakers would choose a certain uh, f- DVI culture, mm-hmm. uh, certain mesophilic starter culture that's used at a, uh, for cheese making at a lower temperature. Mm-hmm. Uh, for making a, a hard uh, uh, alpine cheese, they'd use a thermophilic mm-hmm. culture, a culture that uh, would uh, be more appropriate for making cheese at a higher temperature. So are you saying that in the kefir grain, they both exist, so at the temperature it will respond in the right way and the other one won't do anything? Exactly. So oh. uh, the kefir culture... You won't came- have alpine cheese that tastes like mozzarella. No, you won't. Uh, and None of the cheeses will taste like kefir. They'll taste like uh, raw milk versions of their very own selves. Have you done a side-by-side tasting? I do, yeah. Um, uh, cheese education is a big part. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, my own cheese education has been a big part of my research. Mm-hmm. So I, I make certain cheeses uh, with my style, with my kefir culture, and then I compare them side-by-side uh, with uh, raw milk versions of the same cheese that I pick up from cheese-making shops in the city. I was going to uh, ask you, do you also sometimes make a cheese with a DVI starter and you know, compare those two, both made by you? I don't do that. Okay, because, because you don't I, because want I, the DVI wanna, in your house? I don't want to have to buy DVIs. Uh, <laughs> okay. I, I kinda, Not even I, once. No reason, no reason to purchase them. Um, okay. Uh, yeah. Is it economic? I mean, is it cheaper? How, how much would you spend buying um, DVIs? DVI cultures can be quite expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, for an average home cheesemaker that wants to make a, a lot of different styles of cheese, they'll have to buy a lot of different packages of culture. Mm-hmm. Um, each package of culture costs 10 to $20, depending mm-hmm. on the variety. Uh, and they'll how only many? last about six or so months of cheesemaking. So okay. uh, it, you know, it can cost a cheesemaker, even a home cheesemaker, you know, a couple of hundred dollars to have a collection of different starter cultures on hand for making the diverse different cheeses at home. Mm-hmm. Now, my kefir, which I use as a starter culture, uh, is essentially free. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't you, right you, you, because you can, you're just feeding it and making exactly. it exactly in your kitchen. I mean, you don't. People generally don't pay for them, although you can buy them online. People usually share their kefir grains with one another. It's like, mm-hmm. it's, like a, it's a gift culture. People ah. are happy to share it with one another because they've often received it as gifts. Um, and also, there's no. You're not giving it all away. That's right. You're, you're, you're keeping just some. Giving a little. Yeah, you're giving away your excess. That's right. And uh, all you got to do to keep the kefir uh, is feed it milk. Mm-hmm. But it's not like you're just feeding it milk to keep the kefir alive. When you feed the kefir grain milk, the kefir grain transforms it into kefir, which you can drink, and it's a wonderful probiotic drink. It's really mm-hmm. delicious. Mm-hmm. Uh, got really nice texture. Mm-hmm. Really good for you. I want to ask you one more question before we end, though there are a million questions that come out of your book. I'll have to ask you later at the bar. Um, Raw milk. Now, in the cheese community, we all lament the increasing challenges to making raw milk cheese. Um, We love it. We want it. uh, And it's 
attacked left and right. There was something online today about, you know, the FDA is planning their next attack. But you seem to go further. You um, almost feel like your book is daring people to get their hands on raw milk cheese and use it and drink it and even if it's illegal. Can you talk about what the laws are in Canada where you live and and how you can support encouraging people to do illegal things? This is a very good question. Uh, up in <laughs> up in Canada, yeah. uh, we have some of the strictest regulations against raw milk. You do. Yeah, you cannot. What about the French part of Canada? Uh, even in Quebec. Yeah. Uh, uh, as in the rest of Canada, yeah. uh, farmers are not allowed to sell raw milk okay. to the public. But raw milk cheeses. Raw milk cheeses. We have the same regulations. Much easier than here, no? We actually have the same regulations as in uh, oh. the United States. Oh, okay. Uh, if, you're to make a raw, if you're to make a raw milk cheese, it has to be aged a minimum of 60 days. Mm-hmm. However, in Quebec, cheesemakers have lobbied the, the provincial government to make an exemption for traditional cheeses that they make with raw milk mm-hmm. that they um, age less than 60 days. And so now consumers in Quebec are able to purchase a small number of raw milk cheeses aged less than 60 days. And my, oh my, are they ever delicious. I'm sure. And that uh, people sure. people aren't getting sick from them either. Well, nobody, nobody in the cheese world thinks raw milk cheese makes you sick. I mean, you know, in the small cheese world. Mm-hmm. Now, the big cheese world is another story. It's a whole other story. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so so you um, encourage people to get their hands on raw milk to make your cheeses in the book. Mm-hmm. How how does people go about doing that? Is it different in different places? Well, state by state, it's different. Mm-hmm. Um, here in New York State, for example, raw milk sales aren't illegal. Mm-hmm. You simply have to go to a farmer to get that raw milk. Uh, mm-hmm. You can't uh, purchase raw milk in the grocery store here. However, if you're down in uh, California or Washington State or mm-hmm. Oregon or Pennsylvania or a number of other states in the Union, uh, raw milk sales are a lot more liberal. Oh. Um, people can purchase raw milk in their local grocery stores mm-hmm. um, if there are local producers who are willing to provide it. Mm-hmm. And I'm encouraging people to support those local producers who are mm-hmm. willing to provide it to go out and purchase raw milk if it's legal. Mm-hmm. But I'm also uh, encouraging people to support uh, raw milk farmers uh, who produce raw milk in regions where it's not legal mm-hmm. um, because farmers that practice Uh-oh, a, I hear the sirens. Farmers <laughs> that practice a, a raw milk uh, raw milk practices, good raw milk practices that make uh, raw milk that's safe to drink and that involves pasturing um, that's a really important tenet of the raw milk movement mm-hmm. um, practice a much more sustainable dairying uh, than your average uh, industrial dairy that's allowed to sell milk directly to the public. Mm-hmm. Or, excuse me, that's allowed to sell milk to the public through their milk marketing boards, for instance, mm-hmm. as is the case in Canada. Mm-hmm. So in Canada, uh, I encourage people to go out and support small-scale um, grass-fed dairying operations that may not necessarily be legal because they're practicing a more sustainable dairying than your average uh, industrially, uh, industrially produced milk that you can legally buy in mm-hmm. the grocery store. Now, what is the uh, back to the recipes? If you can't get raw milk, mm-hmm. what milk should you get to make your recipes? And does the uh, kefir starter help um, add some of the diversity to the even the pasteurized milk? You got it. Okay. Um, <laughs> you answered answer the question. Okay. Um, but I'll, I'll explain a little bit more. Um, 
you do not need raw milk to make uh, really any of the cheeses in the book if you mm-hmm. if you don't want to go out and uh, and break the law. And actually, you wouldn't be breaking the law by buying the milk. The farmer would be breaking the law by selling the milk. That's usually yeah. the way the regulation uh. works. Um, uh, and um, uh, you don't actually need uh, to buy uh, unpasteurized milk to make the cheeses in the book, although it does help. It does uh, Raw milk does help cheeses mm-hmm. evolve more naturally. Mm-hmm. But uh, if you can't get raw milk, if it's not legal uh, locally, you can still work with pasteurized milk mm-hmm. so long as it isn't homogenized mm-hmm. and homogenization is a process that most milk sold in the grocery store goes through oh, um, another bad thing. another bad thing that milk is subjected to that <laughs> stops poor its milk. poor milk that, cre- <laughs> that stops its cream from rising to the top ah, okay. but in the end it affects the milk in much deeper ways that even uh, deeper than pasteurizing uh, perhaps so um, uh, because milk that's been homogenized uh, doesn't respond at all, at all to the cheesemaking process. It's very difficult to work with as mm-hmm. a, as a cheesemaker. Uh, it'll cause a lot of headaches to the cheesemaking process, and uh, will ruin uh, a, a lot of cheese if you mm-hmm. if you decide to use it. So it's important to go out and source uh, as unprocessed and as fresh a milk as possible. Mm-hmm. And generally, going to your farmer to purchase that milk, mm-hmm. uh, whether or not that's legal, um, helps to make the best possible cheese because the fresher and less processed a milk is the better a cheese it'll make. Right, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I think everyone would agree with that. Okay, well, unfortunately, we have to end. I want to thank you so much for answering all the questions. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's been an interview with David Asher, who wrote The Art of Natural Cheesemaking. Thanks very much. You're welcome. And let me also thank Liz Smith, our engineer today. The break music was provided by Odetta Hartman. The theme, the theme song to my show is called Cheese by John Burt, and the sponsor has been the Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, tell your friends to subscribe to the show on iTunes and check out uh, heritageradionetwork.org. We have a new website coming in a week. And next up, a short clip of the Speakeasy airing live Wednesdays at 3 p.m. Thank you very much. Signing off for Cutting the Curd. Well, first of all, fall is my favorite season yeah, for, for cocktails. And it's just, like you said, you know, you're at, it's during harvest season. You've got all this beautiful, beautiful produce and different, like, just like everything. Everything's happening during, like, the end of the summer and early fall. On episode 137 of The Speakeasy, master bartender Aaron Polsky talks to host Damon Bolte on why fall is such a perfect time to make great cocktails. There are just new ingredients that are available to us in general, you know, and that's great. Like the accessibility and availability of spices and good quality produce on a wholesale level is awesome. And also the technology to make them work fast. So everybody, well, not everybody, but you and I know the Dave Arnold pioneered uh, rapid infusion technique with an EC container. And of course, you can do that with a cryovac or as I recently discovered, a food saver with a a handy food saver Tupperware canister attachment. You can make things work fast. You can experiment quickly. uh, You can weigh things in grams. You can time how long it takes, how long you're putting suction on it. And you can get really good, uh, good bitters, good infusions. And that's great in, you know, especially for the fall, because you think of fall, you think of, I mean, all jokes aside, you do think of pumpkin spice. You think of pumpkin pie, and you think of all those warm spices and squash and all that. Apples, pears. Apples, pears, pumpkin spice. Yeah. Um, (laughs) I think that six 
six years ago, it would have been difficult to find different types of cinnamon, and now you can easily get them. Whether you know what a rapid infusion machine is, or you're a bartending novice, be sure to listen to The Speakeasy, available on Heritage Radio Network and iTunes. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. 